Hello and welcome to the Talk Spot. I'm Tim Scott. I'm Peter Stockham. Today we're going to talk about new psychoactive substances and we're joined by Alex Kratulski, Associate Director at the Centre for Forensic Science Research and Education, or CFSRE. Alex, welcome to the Talk Spot. Hello, thank you guys for having me. This is great. It's good to finally speak to you, Alex. I've communicated a few times in email, etc., but why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into this area and a bit about where CFSRE and NPS Discovery fit in the forensic landscape? Sure. Uh, so my background is as a chemist. Uh, I have an undergraduate degree and a PhD in chemistry. Uh, and just through uh, learning about forensic science in my coursework, I uh, really fell in love with forensic toxicology. Uh, just from, a, from an early age and in high school, I just really liked the uh, sort of chemical nature and behavior of, of drugs and how their structure comes together and, and what you can do uh, in terms of uh, the chemical processes for identifying them, characterizing them, and whatnot. Uh, so that really interested me early on. And uh, and like I said, uh, as I started learning more about forensic science, got really in, uh, really excited about forensic toxicology and sort of all the aspects that go with that. Uh, and then uh, sort of found my way into, uh, into being a forensic toxicologist. And now I've uh, worked here at the uh, CFSRE for about six years. Uh, so the CFSRE is, we are a, a research and educational facility. That's really our, uh, our background. Uh, the research work that we do is generally grant funded uh, by different agencies here in the United States. It really covers a, a wide range of topics. Uh, generally, it's things like development of analytical methods, uh, characterization of, uh, of drugs, or sort of discovery of new information uh, in the forensic chemistry and forensic toxicology fields. Uh, so I think now about three years back, we started this program called NPS Discovery. Uh, and uh, it's really a, a become a uh, sort of multi-initiative approach at identifying NPS, but also really characterizing drug trends. Uh, maybe not necessarily just NPS, but uh, looking at really uh, the drug market and the drug landscape from a from a very well-rounded approach. Uh, the majority of our information and our samples and our data comes from uh, forensic toxicology cases. Uh, we do monitor uh, drug materials to see what's going on at the street level. Uh, we also have partnerships with uh, emergency departments and, and different clinicians in the United States to see how these uh, NPS are affecting individuals and, and if they're presenting to emergency departments after their exposures. Uh, so yes, we've got a lot of initiatives going on. It's uh, it's become a very large uh, program over the years. I think that uh, when I step back and look at NPS discovery, uh, when we first started out, we were uh, really trying to, to figure out what questions needed to be answered uh, from a forensic toxicology perspective. Uh, and we then respond to that information, whether it be uh, development of analytical methods, generation of quantitative data, uh, looking at um, autopsy reports and, and, and pairing them up with uh, toxicology findings, uh, those types of things. And, and we've, as I said, expanded over, uh, over the last several years and, and have a lot of different initiatives and projects that are going on. But it's great because we've got a, a great picture of what's going on here nationally in the United States. Yeah, it does feel like NPS Discovery has filled a hole that needed to be filled in the forensic tox field, you know, because lots of people are looking for NPS and trying to get that information out. But, you know, if you write it up as a publication that you found some things, it can take quite a long time to actually get that to publishing. And then 
when it gets published to actually spread the word that, you know, people, you should go and read this thing. Whereas I think what you guys are doing there, you've really tried to nail not just the scientific side of it, but also the communication side of it, which is so important. Yeah, absolutely. We, uh, that is something that uh, we've really stressed over the years is timely uh, dissemination of information, whether it be, uh, like you said, information that will eventually end up in publications or whether it be information that may not be uh, at that level to be published. Um, so uh, our initial reports, our, our new drug monographs, get out uh, analytical data very quickly when we identify a new substance. That way laboratories can start using that information. Our public alerts get out information about number of cases, distribution, uh, so basic demographic information, again, very quickly. So that way um, laboratories can sort of know what substances are out there and what's, what's trending upward uh, before it maybe gets to their lab or before they've uh, sort of missed that curve. Um, so, so yeah, that's definitely one of the things that is really important to us, that timely, uh, timely dissemination of information and, and really the vast dissemination. We, uh, we have many partners here in the United States and around the world that we share information with. We're always open to, uh, to sharing information with new people. I always say we're sort of uh, an open book, if you will. Uh, all of our information is available to really whoever wants it. We don't want to be uh, sitting on information that could be valuable to other labs. Uh, and I will mention that it is uh, it can be at, at times a sort of a double-edged sword. It's great to disseminate this information very quickly, and we now have the means to do that through our different avenues. But uh, the downside to that is that when we do need to eventually go and publish results, we do get uh, some kickback that our information is available free and publicly on our website. But we all know that there's certainly benefits to both information like that, free reports and peer-reviewed publications. So uh, so we're, we're keeping up and, and, and still doing that. But our goal is to get the information out as quickly as possible to, to as many people as possible. So when it comes to getting hold of some of these samples, so your programs involve examination of quite a large number of sample extracts from different laboratories. Can you tell us how that program works? Yes. Um, so our lab, the CFSRE, uh, has a strong partnership with NMS Labs, uh, and they are a large reference forensic laboratory here in the United States, uh, getting cases from really all over the country. Uh, and what we've been able to do is we've been able to, to sort of tap into their uh, extracts and, and use them for this sort of these NPS discovery purposes. So uh, as, as people familiar with forensic toxicology labs will know, uh, when samples are prepared and, and analyzed via certain instrumentation, uh, those extracts, uh, which sits in a little bit, a little vial, eventually will end up uh, in the trash. And we've found that there's certainly value in that. Uh, sort of similar to on the clinical side, where you have discarded or waste samples uh, that will eventually be thrown out at a hospital. So we have, uh, as I mentioned before, a number of uh, clinical partnerships at, at different hospitals around the country and several different states uh, where after uh, sort of clinical courses is, is done and, and the patient has been discharged, uh, they'll be able to save those samples and send them to us. So they'll eventually end up in the trash and, and we found great value in them from a drug trends perspective and also from a from a discovering of NPS perspective. So when we're talking about the clinical samples you've got, that's a fantastic resource because a lot of those intoxications will be uh, intoxications that would have otherwise been missed. So we might pick up samples from deceased people in forensic toxicology. You might pick up drugs and drivers samples from other, other streams of forensic tox. But the clinical tox and hospital toxicology areas are really, uh, I think, a rich vein of information that we can get. Yeah, absolutely. I think when we when we talk about NPS, a lot of people are drawn to postmortem investigations and the deaths that they that they cause. And I think that a lot of times what's missed is that 
there is a, a great portion of the population that use uh, NPS or other synthetic drugs that uh, that don't have adverse effects. They don't uh, end up in a medical examiner's office. They don't end up in a hospital. Uh, so we are looking at uh, sort of those, those non-fatal overdose, so those non-fatal exposures, if you will, uh, in the clinical population. Then we do also track, that's uh, one of the reasons we look at seized drug materials is that uh, that is one way to track really the NPS market and see what's out there and see what's not causing adverse events and death, because that's still important to know uh, sort of what drug trends look like and what the drug market itself looks like. It's good to monitor these different populations as well because different drugs might be used by different populations. If you're monitoring hospital admissions, there are certain drugs that just cause more toxic overdoses just by the nature of them. If you're monitoring things like festivals, which I believe you've done a little bit of work there as well, you might see other types of drugs, more stimulants perhaps and hallucinogens. So it's good to have your hand in all of these different populations. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, As you mentioned, certainly things like potent synthetic opioids are more likely to cause deaths. And, and we've seen that uh, just based on their use and, and how much an individual uses. Things like NPS benzodiazepines, we wouldn't generally see uh, as often in postmortem casework. However, we see them very frequently now just because of their combination with opioids uh, and other drugs. That's so one thing that I always tell people about our NPS discovery program is that if you look at our trend reports, we don't see as many hallucinogens and stimulants. And, and that sort of goes to the point that you had mentioned. Um, you don't have, for the, for the number of people that are using these synthetic stimulants, uh, whether it be at dance parties or raves or music festivals, a very small portion of those end up as deaths. And, and you, get, you get a better feel for, uh, or a under, better understanding for, for where those drugs are being used and how they're being used uh, from those clinical populations or from the, from the seized material populations. How does the seized material population compare from your work to those other groups that you're monitoring, the clinical and the postmortem? Well, first, uh, the seized drug materials that we get are are good because we can actually track combinations a lot better. Uh, so whether it be combinations of uh, stimulants and opioids, which we, we find a little bit less. Generally, it seems like people are buying their opioids and buying their stimulants separately, combining them then to use it if they are using uh, opioids and stimulants together. Um, but one thing that we've really been able to figure out is that we are seeing uh, these NPS opioids and NPS benzodiazepines mixed together in the powder. Uh, so at one point, we were speculating, were, were these people uh, trying to buy heroin or fentanyl and ending up with NPS opioids and, and taking counterfeit Xanax on the side, or, or were these together? And those are some of the, the questions that we've been able to answer looking at the seized drug materials. For all the talk about NPS we don't find them in many cases. We, you know, normal tox lab analyzes thousands of cases, only finds NPS in a few really of those. I don't know whether you have a higher proportion because maybe you're targeting the samples a little bit more, but what's how many of the samples that you get do you actually find NPS in? Uh, you're right. So for example, the extracts that we get from NMS labs, uh, NMS labs analyzes hundreds of thousands of, of samples a year. Uh, we certainly are not able to, to reanalyze all of those samples. So we've had to decide what samples we are going to sequester for analysis. Uh, and the way that we do it is we are analyzing samples that are samples that go through the workflows for their NPS testing. Uh, so that can be samples that uh, someone sends in because they suspect NPS to be present or it's samples that uh, may have screened positive for one NPS but contain additional NPS. Um, so our proportion of samples that contain NPS is much higher because of that. I think over the last 
three years, we've analyzed something like 15 to 20,000 samples. Um, and I would say that, again, this is going to be actually be class dependent. Uh, so for synthetic cannabinoids, our synthetic cannabinoid extracts come from what's considered, I guess, a screening test for synthetic cannabinoids. So you may have a batch of 100 samples where you only have three or four or five positive. Uh, so that's a little bit more in line with, uh, with positivity in terms of general NPS testing. Whereas for our other NPS classes, things like opioids, benzodiazepines, stimulants, uh, generally of those uh, samples that we run, you're going to have something higher, like somewhere around maybe 80% of samples are positive for at least one NPS. Uh, and then we did a breakdown a little while back, but you can see as the percentages get lower, but we certainly have cases that are positive for two NPS and three NPS and four NPS. Uh, and again, those, those percentages get lower. And that's uh, that's really where the opportunity for us lies is in cases where you have an individual who's using uh, maybe an old NPS and starts using a new NPS and we're able to identify it through that sort of change in use or that concurrent use of, of multiple drugs. Say if you're uh, looking for NPS in a sample, can you run through a maybe a method that you might use in the instrumentation? Sure. Um, so the samples will come in. Uh, and then we'll, the first decision that we have to make is uh, how to screen the sample. And when I say that, I mean, do we screen it for uh, sort of our general screen for NPS uh, and drugs of abuse, uh, or do we also include a synthetic cannabinoid screen? Uh, so our, uh, our sort of general screening method, we, we call it a basic screen, basic meaning pH, not basic meaning uh, simple. Uh, our basic screen contains over 900 drugs. Uh, so it gives us a very good picture of what's going on in the sample. Uh, however, it may not give us a good picture of those cannabinoids that are there, again, based on chemistry. Uh, so we'll decide whether or not we want to go through uh, testing for synthetic cannabinoids and ultimately also testing for regular cannabinoids, things like THC uh, and its metabolites. So, uh, so that's usually our first decision. Um, generally, for most cases nowadays, we'll say that they're going to go through both. Uh, and the reason that I say that is uh, we are finding that uh, we'll get samples and a medical examiner may say that they suspect uh, it's an opioid overdose, uh, but in reality, it's actually a synthetic cannabinoid overdose uh, that is sort of masking as a, an opioid overdose. And, and that's due to some of the uh, respiratory failure sort of side effects that come with synthetic cannabinoids. And, and so now I can talk about that forever. But uh, moving forward with the analytical approach, we'll generally go through both of those screens. Uh, so the samples will get extracted. Uh, those extraction procedures for the screen uh, are what I consider to be non-targeted extraction methods. Uh, they're sort of your uh, simple liquid-liquid extraction. You're, you're trying to pull out uh, really as many things as you can. And, and then from there, uh, we'll analyze them on our uh, LCQTOF-MS. We'll get our screening results. Uh, and then we'll decide, once we get our screening results, what the next step is. And, and when I say that is, once we get our screening results, we need to decide, A, what we need to confirm. Or, or what we want to confirm based on who submitted the sample and what information they need, uh, and then B, how we want to confirm. So generally, when, when we're talking about what we want to confirm, we will discuss what drugs are in the sample. Uh, generally, we'll only move forward with confirmation and quantitation on NPS, uh, but it depends on the case. Generally, like I said, uh, when laboratories are submitting samples to us, they're, they're looking for those results of NPS. Uh, they generally may have already gotten the results of uh, of the traditional drugs of abuse or therapeutics uh, elsewhere. So uh, generally, we'll, we'll move forward with quantitation of the NPS. And, and sometimes we do need to uh, to rank them. 
Uh, as I mentioned, this is uh, it's very rare for us to find uh, a single drug. Uh, it's a little bit more common for us to find a single NPS in a sample with other drugs. Uh, it's sort of rare to find multiple NPS, uh, but if we do have limited sample volume, we certainly have to decide uh, what of those NPS we want to confirm. Uh, and then the next is how we want to confirm it. Uh, so we can confirm things qualitatively. Uh, we do have multiple uh, high resolution mass spec systems in our lab that we are able to, to confirm things qualitatively if we want. Uh, and, and it depends on if it's a new substance that we've, we're seeing or if it's an old substance. So uh, we may already have a, a validated method. We've uh, we've sort of proactively gone through and, and developed a method for a lot of these new nitazine analogs, uh, so these new synthetic, uh, potent synthetic opioids. So if we have one of those, we already have a traditionally validated method that we can uh, send that through for confirmation. Um, but if it is a new, completely new drug, uh, we will potentially have to go through that method development process. Uh, maybe we will do it by standard edition because we don't think we'll see uh, too, too many more of those. Uh, so we need to uh, first develop the method, we need to verify that method, and then we need to uh, apply it to the authentic sample. So um, so if it's a, if it's an opioid, a benzodiazepine, or a stimulant, or a hallucinogen, we will generally go through quantitation. It's synthetic cannabinoids that we always have to ask ourselves uh, if we want to go through quantitation, but it just seems like synthetic cannabinoids are so less frequently quantitated that most laboratories or most uh, medical examiner's offices or coroner's offices here in the United States don't really want to pursue that. They just want the qualitative results. So we do talk with our uh, our collaborators and see what their interest is. Certainly, we want to we want to fill their need. Uh, we don't want to just do whatever we want on our own. Uh, but that's not to say that once we uh, once we confirm a drug for them and, and report it out, we won't go back and requantitate if it's something that is of interest to us. So let's talk a bit about your approach to method development. You've obviously developed quite a few different methods there for different purposes. I was interested to read one of your papers, which was about the separation of the structural isomers, cyclopropyl fentanyl and crotonyl fentanyl. And there was a couple of other isomers in there as well that I think you were trying to separate. What's your approach to developing a new LCMS method? You've got some drugs that you want to analyze. Are you looking at methods that you've already got and saying, let's modify those? Are you scouring the literature to see what's there and who's done it before? Uh, That's a great question. Um, so I will say, uh, from my perspective, chromatography is definitely not dead. Uh, I think some people want to <laughs> jump right into the mass spectrometer and, and avoid the chromatography. And, and I don't think that's necessarily a good idea. Uh, we heavily utilize our chromatographic separation and our mass spec separation uh, at the same time. So uh, when we get to uh, to a point where we're trying to develop a new method, uh, the first thing we always do will uh, certainly go and assess the, the mass spectrometer side to make sure that we can detect the drug. Um, if it's a, a LC triple quad, we'll develop a, an MRM method where we've got all the different masses and fragments and, and making sure that the, uh, the instrument is set up to detect those drugs. Uh, and then generally from there, we will start off with uh, an LC gradient that is similar to something that we used before. Uh, so we're not usually interested in reinventing the wheel for every analysis. However, uh, we do know that that is necessary when you get into things like isomers, as you mentioned, whether they be uh, very chemically similar isomers of fentanyl analogs or uh, whether they may be sort of any other drug class. So, uh, so generally, we'll start off with a, with a very generic gradient, high aqueous to high organic, and just see how, how things behave. Uh, and if things aren't behaving the way, uh, the way we want them to, we, we'll go through a, a sort of a method development phase where we're changing mobile phase, changing columns, changing gradients, and figuring out how we can get the best separation that we need. 
Um, so with uh, with cyclopropyl fentanyl and crotonyl fentanyl, we, uh, we went through many iterations of chromatographic behavior before we were able to uh, separate those out. Uh, we actually used two different methods for that. Uh, so that's uh, quite interesting. And then we're actually right now, the isomers that are really of interest to us are the ortho, meta, and para fluorofentanyl. Uh, and then the other halogenated fentanyls, things like chlorofentanyl and bromofentanyl. So yeah, like I said, chromatography is not dead. We need chromatography. There's really no other way for us to identify these isomers. Uh, they have identical fragment spectra when we look at them uh, via high-resolution mass spectrometry, and they they look and behave very similarly again on a on a triple quad. So um, so that's sort of our approach. And then once we're able to to develop that method, get the separation that we need, we move forward with our verification or our validation. Just on that point of whether you're looking for ortho, meta, and para analogs of a drug, they're all very, very similar. Do you know if they have actually, like say, for example, of fluorofentanyl, do, do they have different pharmacological activity? Uh, so this information has been recently reported uh, looking at in vitro studies. Uh, so for NPS, as, as many people um, sort of familiar with the field will know that uh, generally the information that we get on potency and efficacy generally are going to come from in vitro studies. Uh, we're not going to have in vitro in vivo data unless this substance has been uh, studied or, or patented before and, and, and looked at in animal models. Um, so based on the in vitro data that we have for fluorofentanyl, we do know that the ortho analog is more potent than the meta and para analogs. Uh, so we did a lot of work here, and, and we to this day, every time we get a fluorofentanyl case in, we will always uh, distinguish them to make sure we don't have ortho versus meta uh, and para, uh, because that ortho analog is more potent. So uh, parafluorofentanyl, again, based on this in vitro data, uh, is shown to be about the same potency as fentanyl. Uh, so that's not too bad or too much of a worry, I guess, if you're sort of treating it like fentanyl. Whereas the ortho analog actually has potency more similar to something like 3-methylfentanyl or carfentanyl. Uh, and I have hypothesized that when you look at that 3 position where 3-methylfentanyl has that methyl group uh, and the ortho position on the aniline ring of fentanyl, uh, they're in a very similar space geographically. So, so something must be uh, sort of of interest there with the opioid receptors. Uh, but yes, we do see differences in, in potency. And for some drugs, it's very important for us to, to distinguish them because it can be very important. Uh, whereas with other drugs, it might not be as important. Uh, so something like chlorofentanyl, uh, chlorofentanyl is a little bit less potent than fentanyl. So we don't have that uh, sort of same issue. So we may not have to put as much emphasis uh, on chlorofentanyl as we do on orthofluorofentanyl. Your mass spectrometry method, you mentioned that you've got uh, retention time and accurate mass you're using SWATH, is that right? Yes. Do you want to explain a little bit? I've tried to explain it a few times. I don't know how well I've done on this show, but maybe uh, you can explain it to us. Yeah, so our uh, our high-res mass spec system uses something called SWATH acquisition. It is a non-targeted uh, data acquisition approach. Uh, and there are really two stages uh, to our acquisition. The first is just the TOF MS scan. So that's going to give you the, the accurate mass of your precursor ions. Uh, and then the second is that SWATH acquisition. Uh, so what SWATH acquisition does, rather than letting the software pick what drugs get fragmented, uh, SWATH acquisition creates windows and it'll actually pass a mass range through to the collision cell to generate fragments. And it does that on a cycling basis. Uh, so when we think about targeted data acquisition modes, 
what's happening is you get a molecule that's introduced into your mass spectrometer. The software decides it's going to isolate it in the quadrupole and fragment it. Uh, and you get a very clean fragment spectra. So that's great. Uh, so conversely with SWATH, a uh, non-targeted acquisition mode, you have a molecule that enters the mass spectrometer. Uh, you don't have to let the software pick that molecule and sequester it. Uh, it's going to be automatically sequestered based on those windows that span the entire, uh, entire mass range. Uh, so you do get a little bit less specific fragment spectra. Uh, but what I always say is that for the most part, when you have this paired with an LC system, you're getting pretty good separation from your chromatography that it's very rare to have multiple things that are within a mass window uh, that are going to elute, enter the mass spectrometer and fragment together. Uh, so that's really the general concept. Uh, for us, uh, it's been extremely important because for what we do, we want to make sure that we're, we're acquiring all information, all data from a sample, because we have no idea what's going to be in there. We don't know if we're going to identify an NPS that takes us six months to figure out was there. We don't know if there's going to be metabolites uh, that we don't know about yet. So we want to make sure that that fragment data uh, and that fragment data is very important to us. It's a, a very, very important piece of information uh, for some isomers. It gives you a lot of information. It, it can distinguish isomers uh, for others. It at least uh, gives you some more certainty in, in identifying and in pairing up that precursor ion with those fragment ions. Uh, so SWATH really, uh, really provides us uh, much more certainty. Uh, we're going to collect that information. Uh, it's very consistent. We don't have to, again, worry about the software selecting ions for us. We don't have to worry about uh, any of those other sort of set points. We know that fragmentation spectra will be acquired, uh, and it's done so in that uh, sort of systematic uh, stepwise windows across the mass range. I guess one of the things that I know it's uh, isolating a narrow window, but when it comes to routine screening, say if you have, for example, a deuterated analog in your for one of your particular drugs, sometimes the deuterated analog will have the same fragment ions as the parent. Is there any way to deal with that? There is, uh, and there's two ways to deal with it. Um, so for us, when we set up our SWATH method, we knew what four internal standards we were going to use. So we made sure that the non-deuterated counterpart and the deuterated counterpart were in different windows. So they were fragmenting separately. However, as you mentioned, when you go, when you move forward and you, when you add internal standards, you, uh, you may not want to go back and change your methods. So you may have things that uh, are deuterated and non-deuterated within, uh, within the same window fragmenting together because they're pretty much co-alluding together uh, or alluding from your LC system into the, max, into the mass spectrometer together. So this actually happens for us with something like a Tizolam. Uh, so Tizolam and its D5 deuterated internal standard is something that is used in some of the extracts that we get. Uh, so when we see a Tizolam, we can, uh, we can have a positive identification for a Tizolam based on the internal standard. Uh, and the reason we get around that is if you look at the TOF MS data, you will not have the precursor ion for a Tizolam because uh, you're going to have the precursor ion for a Tizolam D5. So that's the, that's the first indication. And I always tell our analysts, the first place you look is always your TOF MS data. If you don't have uh, that, then you know you don't need to even look any further. Uh, there are some times where we, where we get some uh, peaks there and we want to make sure it, it is or is not uh, Tizolam or Tizolam D5. And that's when we can shift to our fragment spectrum. Uh, so everything from your precursor ion down, as you mentioned, is mostly going to be the same. Unless you have deuteration on, on a place where you're creating that fragment, uh, you will have slightly different 
fragments. So, so sometimes you can tell there, but for us, it's again, really important to look uh, for the majority of the fragment spectra that we collect, there is residual precursor ion left. So you'll be able to see the precursor ion as well in the fragment spectrum. Uh, so we can distinguish them deuterated internal standards from uh, the non-deuterated counterparts, even using swath acquisition. I wonder if C13 labeled analogs will become more popular with people using swath because then you do have all the fragments being different to the the fragments of the native analog. Yeah, that's a I, that's a great question. Uh, and there certainly are uh, some C13 uh, analogs of the of the drugs that we deal with. Uh, they're not too frequent. Um, it would be interesting to have uh, a molecule that's got a lot more C13 than just a few. Sometimes uh, we may have. Uh, internal standards that only have one C13 and then also some deuterium. So, uh, so yeah, definitely, a, definitely an opportunity. And, and, and like I mentioned before, I'm always open to different uh, advancements in quantitative analysis or even something like that in qualitative analysis. Uh, that would be very interesting. We just need the manufacturers to keep working on the mass spectrometers until they get the cycle fast enough that those windows can just be very small, maybe one or two mass units. That'll just be perfect. Yeah, so uh, definitely that is, uh, I think, probably as technology advances the way uh, the way that it's going. I will say, though, that the wide mass range actually can be a benefit in that if you have a, a substance that is chlorinated or brominated, you actually see the chlorinated and brominated fragments. Uh, and that can be, for an analyst, uh, a piece of information that is uh, very important. You can say, well, uh, this gives me more certainty because now I know I'm supposed to have a chlorinated fragment and I see you have the chlorine isotopes of the fragment. So, uh, so yeah, definitely pros and cons to it. Uh, I don't know which is best. And, and as technology advances, we'll, be, uh, we'll all be figuring that out together. Uh, and then the other thing I will mention is that I do think that there are other instruments that will eventually uh, make their way onto the scene Something like ion mobility mass spectrometry, I don't think is is ready yet for a screening approach in forensic toxicology, uh, but I think that we shouldn't rule it out. And I think that uh, there's certainly opportunities there. And, and in the future, as some of those uh, systems become a little bit better understood and, and more available in the forensic toxicology field, I wouldn't be surprised if, if those are introduced and, and that is the future. Uh, or some other technology that maybe we're not thinking of and and maybe it's more uh, more mass spectrometers in a row, more uh, tandem mass spectrometers. Yeah, what about a TOF TOF? Can, can we get to that? Probably not. <laughs> Seems impossible, I, I doesn't say, it? I wouldn't say. I wouldn't say never. You never. You really never know uh, with the way that analytical chemistry and and mass spectrometry itself is expanding. I mean, it's been an exponential growth. I think that if you look back five years, people would have said, "No, forensic labs are never going to have high res mass spectrometry. We don't need that." Uh, it's not for us. It's too expensive. And, and now you're probably finding most labs saying, I'm trying to work it into my budget so I can get uh, a high-res mass spec system. Once you've had one, I don't think you ever want to go back because you realize how much you're missing. I mean, you might just think you're analyzing for morphine and codeine, but you never see that gigantic olanzapine that's directly underneath your morphine peak that you've never even seen. So it's amazing what people are missing even with putrefactive compounds and things like that that co-elute. I love it. Absolutely. Probably a bit too yeah. much. <laughs> yeah, it can be. It can definitely be confusing. You, you With high-res mass spec systems, you definitely need a, a good workflow uh, because you're identifying 
thousands and thousands of masses that mm. uh, it can be almost too much to go through. So, uh, but the good thing is that as technology is advancing, not only is the hardware advancing, so is the software and we're getting much better software uh, to be able to, to piece all the, or to parse all these different pieces out. That is an excellent point because it's the software that you might have the best uh, mass spectrometer in the world, but if it can't do what you want to do in an efficient way in your laboratory, then you're in big trouble because it'll just take you too long to process a, a simple uh, chromatogram. But the other thing you do need when you've got a high-res mass spec is a bit of discipline. You've got to stop yourself looking at every unknown peak you see. And uh, some people struggle with that. Well, mo- <laughs> most most people have to stop themselves. Alex, you probably don't have to stop yourself. That's your job, right? <laughs> Go as far as you can. Uh, Yes, sometimes. Uh, I will say that I have gone down many a rabbit hole uh, on a mass and a fragment spectra that I think is of interest and I find out uh, that it is not. So uh, my go-to now is always, absolutely always, when you're looking at uh, a new new substance, if you're looking at a new mass, if you're looking at an unknown, the first thing you do is always compare to your matrix blank, your reagent blank, whatever it is, so you know that you're not looking at something that is not of interest. Because uh, I've gone down many a rabbit hole, and uh, I do it still to this day. And and a lot of it is, uh, as forensic toxicologists, we are uh, we're searching for that next answer. We want to get we want to get the result uh, of of something that's in a sample if there's something there, and and we don't want to let anything go un, unidentified. We want to help the medical examiner out. We want to uh, bring closure to a family. Uh, so we want to make sure that we're uh, we're sort of putting in our effort and putting in our due, due diligence if there if there is going to be something there. And sometimes that leads us down the road of maybe looking too much and saying uh, I'm looking for something, but but really I'm looking at background or I'm looking at matrix, and and now I've wasted an hour of my time. <laughs> but that rush that you get when you do find an NPS. It's hard to compare to that, I think. I mean, it hasn't happened many times to me, but I found a fentanyl analog once and I was just over the moon. It was just so much fun. I couldn't believe that I'd found it. It was probably one of the first detections of this drug that had ever been found that reported. So it was very exciting. You can't beat it. It is a great rush, uh, especially uh, as an analytical chemist. When you're sitting there and you're looking at data uh, and you're, you've sort of uh, got your formula that you've gotten from your uh, precursor ion, you're trying to elucidate a structure uh, and you find out that the structure that you've drawn has fragments that match all of the fragments in your spectrum. It is, it is a very good feeling. It's nothing like uh, anything else. And uh, it makes you very excited. You want to tell everyone you know, even though some people are like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a call. I'll listen to you. <laughs> Well, thanks very much for joining us, Alex. It's been a really interesting discussion. And CFSRE does put out information all over the place. So tell people how can they follow your alerts if they want to track which new drugs are coming out and so on. Absolutely. So our uh, our NPS discovery program, uh, we have a great website that has all of our different reports on it. Uh, so that's www.npsdiscovery.org. Uh, so again, that has all of our uh new drug monographs, trend reports, public health alerts, uh, and whatnot. Uh, If you are interested in any of our continuing education courses or any of the content uh, through CFSRE, uh, our website is www.cfsre.org. If you are an avid user of Twitter, uh, you can follow us at NPS Discovery uh, on Twitter. Uh, And we also have uh, a a Twitter handle for our CFSRE, which is at Forsyth Research uh, on Twitter. So feel free to follow us. Uh, we've got pages on Facebook, uh, LinkedIn as well for our CFSRE. So uh, when you get to those locations, you will see 
uh, information for how to sign up for our distribution list. Uh, so you can either email npsdiscovery at cfsre.org, uh, or you can go to our website. There is a form you can fill out, put in your information, and it'll add you to our uh, distribution list. And then you'll get all of our monographs, public alerts, all of that in real time. Thank you very much, Alex. And maybe we'll hear from you again on the TalkSpot. Absolutely. This was great. It was, it was great talking with you both. This was uh, certainly a great way to spend my, uh, my morning. Uh, and I'd be happy to come back and chat with you guys again in the future. And if you want to contact Pete and I, you can email us at toxpod at tf.org. Don't forget to go to the website to look at any of TF's latest news. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. Registration is now open for the 61st annual TAFT meeting taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.tft2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.